Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. And welcome back to the FBF Podcast. This is our show in the game, joined by Brady Quinn. I am Matt Chatham. Brady, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well, especially after that uh, the Sunday games last weekend. Not Saturday's games, but Sunday's <laughs> games. Much more competitive, much more thrilling uh, there in the end. Yeah, they really uh, they really cap that thing off, uh, and I think it leads us to some reasonable excitement for what comes this weekend because the contests get that much better, presumably. So it's going to be a fun week, and we've got so much stuff here to cover. But I I thought it, we I'd be sort of remiss to not at least touch on last week's. So we sort of need to wrap a lot of the things that went on uh, in last week's games, and not, you know, so that we can sort of set the table for what we're going to talk about later. So first off, we'll dive into uh, these these uh, divisional round games. I, w- I want to look first at uh, the Steelers uh, because, you know, we'll, we'll do Steelers-Patriots here in a second. But Steelers coming out of a very difficult place to play in Arrowhead there, uh, advancing with the, I don't know, historical curiosity. I don't know that if this is actually true, but a team that doesn't score any touchdowns and is able to advance from a pretty difficult place. Uh, what was sort of your, uh, your immediate reaction from coming from that game? Uh, well, not not the type of football you want to be playing if you're going to be going now to try to play the New England Patriots in Foxborough, uh, in particular the number one scoring defense. We've heard that for a little while now throughout the course of the postseason, but reason being is the Pittsburgh Steelers were 0 for in the red zone in scoring. And now the Kansas City Chiefs were you know, one of the better defensive teams uh, this past season in red zone defense, but still, this is the playoffs. This is your opportunity to try to go win a Super Bowl. You've got to be able to convert touchdowns, not field goals in the red zone. That's why third and goal and, and those situations in particular are some of the most critical. And the Steelers couldn't find a way. And I think you got to credit the Chiefs' defense, but you also have to be concerned if you're a Steelers fan, if you're you know, one of the players or coaches on that team. Yeah, it's 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 something that we can we can dive into deeper how they do accomplish that. But I think it's something that independent of who you cheer for, national team, not whatever, uh, you have to kind of look at that sort of side eye and go, "Wow, a how that happened, and b is it going to work moving forward?" But uh, I won't spend too much time with the Patriots game. They took care of business against Houston, although they were a little bit sloppy. Again, we can sort of try to tie that into what they'll need to get them this po- this next weekend. But I, I think we do see the matchup that that many anticipated. I, I think there was a there was a reasonable argument that maybe Kansas City could once and for all sort of pull it all together. I still think. Uh, uh, they may have given the Patriots a more difficult AFC Championship game than than the Steelers might, but again, sort of not trying to give away my hand for for what we'll talk about later. But I think by and large, we're getting a matchup that could have been reasonably reasonably been predicted that these two teams top of the AFC that that's that's not a stretch. We're not here by any any sort of major surprise. I just think the you know the one issue that that would have caught people a little little oddball if we were having this conversation in August, is that, hey, the Steelers are going to have offensive struggles and make it to the AFC Championship game. I mean, that's, that, that seems a little sideways. But uh, So flipping to the other side uh, and the other in, in the NFC, uh, I'm uh, sort of of the mind that we shouldn't be too surprised of who we got, but I'm a little surprised how handily uh, the Falcons sort of corrected themselves in-game and we're able to hold down uh, the Seahawks. Uh, I expected, I think like a lot of people, 
are looking forward to this sort of NFC Championship game where we know we're now going to get the Packers and Falcons for sort of the shootout. Uh, and the, the Falcons have a tendency, I think, you know, looking throughout sort of the regular season results of pulling teams towards them. You know, we know they're going to score, but then, you know, the other team's going to maybe shoot above their averages because Atlanta's defenses can be a little ragged. I give Dan Quinn a ton of credit in that game for some of the in-game adjustments they made a couple series in because I think some of the most impressive offensive drives we saw the entire weekend, AFC side or, or NFC side, was actually Seattle's first couple drives. <laughs> Seattle was absolutely methodical, just tore through Atlanta's defense. And I think I was maybe overacting, but early in that game thinking, oh, here we go. You know, Atlanta looks so good during the year. They're, they need to just – tighten things up a little bit and they did and I think sort of blitz scheme stuff and again sort of more X's knows we can get into later but really got to credit Atlanta for some of the in-game adjustments they made and started to put some gap between put a good sizable gap between the two of the two of those teams and and make it a comfortable victory so uh anything that uh sort of surprised you coming out of that that uh, that Falcon Seahawks contest Brady uh, nothing that really surprised me. I think the one thing you touched on is just their in-game adjustments. And it, to me, it started in the second quarter. Then it, it came after halftime where Atlanta started to distance themselves, you know, from the Seattle Seahawks. But that was the difference between last year's team and this year's team. And if you look at both teams, they each got off the kind of hot starts at the beginning of the season. And in 2015, the team kind of fizzled out. This year, they were able to maintain – uh, their progression throughout the course of the year, and, it, and it's led them now to be in the NFC Championship game. Um, so I, I think it was it was the in-game adjustments that I think it's easier to happen when you're in a system for a second year. And a lot of times right. when you're kind of reverting back to some of the things that either you, you talked about trying to do in-game that maybe you did in training camp or OTAs, that you're not trying to implement in a live game strat in your scenario without actually practicing it. Um, you know, that, that comes with time and experience. And I think that's what we're seeing from the Atlanta Falcons is a second year in, in Dan Quinn's, you know, let's say his system defensively, but also, you know, Kyle Shanahan and his offense. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the easiest things to look at is if you look at Matt Ryan's career, he's been a double-digit interception guy in the regular season. And even if you kind of want to include the rest of the season, pretty much, you know, throughout the course of his career, he's, he's basically cut his interceptions in half from what they were last year to this year. And I think that's pretty remarkable, and it, it just goes to show you how much more comfortable he is with this system. But um, nothing, you know, really overly surprising. I think, you know, to, to be quite honest, Seattle's just not the same team that they have been in years past. Right. And that's why I'm most curious to see how Atlanta will handle, you know, Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers when we get to the preview of that game. Because Seattle, you know, they, they showed exactly what, you know, they had kind of been this season. They were extremely inconsistent where they can put together, you know, a, a, some opening drives like they did offensively and defensively shut out the Falcons in the first quarter. And then all of a sudden they can just fall apart in the second half. And and that's kind of how they are. And you see them emotional in the locker room afterwards and, and all that. that. That's kind of the frustrating season it's been for Seattle where they have not been able to just put it all together uh, and have success. So I, I don't know that Atlanta – that's really been challenged quite yet, at least right. like they will be going up against the Packers. Yeah, oddly enough, uh, uh, the the thing I found cool about about them responding that way, sort of as you as as you just described, there was it it, it was sort of Seahawk esque, 
really. And I mean, maybe that's some of the DNA that Dan has from, from sort of growing up in a little bit in that system anyway, out there with Pete, but it's something that we've been able to, you know, I'm seeing it more from the Patriots perspective, but having run into them a couple of times in, in regular season games, obviously the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, and just knowing what that team's been close to or at the top for, for the last several years. And one of the, the defining characteristics you'd say about the Seahawks is really sort of their toughness that, oh, you're up on a score on them. That doesn't matter, right? You know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to in game adjust. They're going to continue to fight. They're just a really scratch and claw kind of group. You, you never, you don't have them down and, you know, you don't have them dead until not only the caskets locked, but it's eight feet under concrete and dirt, all that. You know, it's not just, hey, we got ahead. We're good. So that's a credit. And I think you're starting to see some of those characteristics we're used to seeing in Seattle now in Atlanta. But that said, sort of the M.O. of the team is sort of flipped on its head. It's not a defensively led first team. It's just more, uh, you know, the energy component that we always feel from Pete. I think you feel that from Dan. You, you see the players respond well after bad series, which you always kind of look for in teams. And that's that's usually an indication of coaching and leadership and all that kind of stuff. So pretty cool to watch. And uh yeah, we'll, again, we'll sort of get into this as we, we look closer at their matchup with the Packers, but I think the world's going to start to get to know Dan Quinn a little bit better, and I think it's much deserved. I think he's one of the really, really, really fine coaches in this league, and again, there's a personal bias there, but I certainly like him a lot. Uh, moving on to the Packers, uh, Packers-Cowboys, this was a monstrous game. They they moved this thing to uh, the evening, well, not not the the evening excuse me it was the 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 mid late afternoon game whatever you want to call it um but gets the biggest number in nfl history for whatever that slot was or for the divisional round or whatever this packers cowboys game was you know being shown on the moon or something like the the rating number they pulled from this thing was absolutely astronomical which you know it it makes you wonder in part is it just simply interest in these two monster franchises because both of them have national brands you'll find packers fans in in the middle of florida you'll find them in in utah you'll find them all over the place and the cowboys have a little bit of that reach themselves uh but i think beyond just you know initial interest they kept you engaged throughout the game where you can see sort of the the ratings number continue to pull late into this thing and it was just a really really exciting finish a great second half of football uh any sort of big parting shots that you had from that particular game brady um i I think just the fact that you know dallas was able to get back into the game they don't have one of the more prolific passing attacks so as much right. as we got caught up in the back and forth and the drama of that game, as again as we spin things forward looking ahead, I'd be concerned if I was a Packers fan going up against arguably the best offense in the NFL and the Atlanta Falcons this season. Um, and, and as bad as my secondary looked trying to stop Des Bryant and Dak Prescott, Jason Witten, and, and the rest of the pieces, uh, they're in the passing game for the Dallas Cowboys. So, you know, I, I think, Again, I would be a bit concerned defensively. I think everyone knows that they've been, you know, battling injury, the injury bug in the secondary. But it's also the fact that their pass rush hasn't been as good as it's been in years past. I think you go back to 2010 when they won a Super Bowl. And you say what you want um, about that team's defense during the regular season. Their postseason, they got it together. And Clay Matthews was much more impactful as a pass rusher. I just don't see that being as much the case. Um, I, I think, you know, Nick Perry has gotten better, although he's wearing a club, I believe, on his, on his right arm. Yeah. And, you know, Clay Matthews and Julius Peppers are getting up there in age. So, you know, now, again, as we kind of start to look ahead, I'd be very concerned right now about where my defense stands if they can get any stops whatsoever for Atlanta. I want to say they, you know, punted early on in the game versus Seattle uh, last week. 
But outside of that, I don't think believe they punted again until like the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. It was something ridiculous like that when you look at their second quarter and third quarter. So, you know, again, that, that was one of the biggest takeaways, I think, is just the fact that we all get enamored by Aaron Rodgers and how well he's playing, but it's still the ultimate team sport. And you still have to have a defense that either, A, gets you the ball back if you're Aaron Rodgers, or, B, gives you some stops because he's largely done it on his own. He might not have his number one wide receiver in Jordy Nelson. They haven't been able to run the football consistently. Even though Tom Montgomery, I do think, gives them some interesting, you know, matchups as far as how how teams want to play them. If they want to play man-to-man and try to match up with a wide receiver who's now kind of playing running back. Uh, I thought they'd do that more against the Dallas Cowboys where they split out Ty Montgomery and Sean Lee, and they never took that shot. Maybe that's a credit to Sean Lee. Maybe it was just they felt like they had easier completions on the inside. Um, I personally would have loved to test out Sean Lee and see if he can cover Tom Montgomery in a go route, uh, given, given Tom Montgomery's you know history and his 40 speed versus Sean Lee. So we'll see if, if that continues in this game. That's kind of another thing I'll, I'll be curious to see is the X's and O's in the scheme. Because if you're looking at, for example, um, and again, I don't want to get too much in the, in the preview in the games quite yet, but if you're looking at these two uh, defenses that are squaring off, One's simple, one's a bit more complicated. So uh, we'll, right. we'll kind of break that down here a little bit. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, Brady, because you, you sort of touched on not going back at Sean. I mean, it, he gave, I believe it was Rodgers, the other tight end, uh, for, for that they went at early, got the touchdown yeah. right over yeah. the top of Sean, and it just sort of became a foot race, I think, in part. It was kind of impressive to see how well Rodgers moves. We don't see him used a ton. I think we kind of came into that game, and it was a lot of this real lead-up talk that, hey, this could be a big Jared Cook week, and it was. Obviously, you know, the the, the big miraculous play there at the end that that sets up the field goal is, is a nice completion to cook and he had a couple others in the game but that was sort of a sneaky a sneaky end that the Packers had uh actually finding some middle of the field production against what's a pretty athletic uh, linebacking group of the Cowboys so yeah the fact that they maybe didn't go back and try to uh, exploit it with back stuff as well that's that's an interesting thought I uh one of the things I was sort of you know to put that to bed, to put that particular game to bed, but at least sort of tip of the cap as we go out. One of the things I really liked from just sort of an inside football thing is, and I advocate for this all the time, but you don't often see it. Uh, and I know every team is not not built to do it as, as the Cowboys are, but one of the things I loved seeing is they got that big spread. I don't remember, was it 21-3, something like that, 23? They, they were quite out in front early on. And uh, I was really impressed that the Cowboys continued to run the football um, and because I always I, I feel like we see this a lot in the NFL where a team gets down maybe two scores at like 10 points, maybe 12, maybe 14, something like that. And just said, Hey man, the only way back is passing, but they suck at passing. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I think at the end of the day, obviously clock, uh, clock becomes an issue. And I understand that's in part why, why there's your, your move to more go that route. But it it's it, it always seems like this trap that you you know if you're that team that leads and this is part of your game plan to get up on them uh you see teams fall into this trap all the time it's like man the thing we're most worried about with you is your ability to run the football we got up one score is that enough to goat you out of actually trying it anymore <laughs> because that's a thing that's more dangerous to us i mean if we if we if you're going to get 10 yards the best way for you to get it is actually to break a run because we struggle with tackling we struggle with our front but thank god our offense got us up by a score and, and dallas surprisingly went back 
to it. And you'd see chunk runs, you know, just six and eight yard runs by Elliott. And then the ability to complete the pass on second and two, you know, that for, for a nice chunk thing. And I thought that actually kept them in the game. Now, it's not like that they just handed it off, you know, 12 times a row and killed a nine, you know, nine minutes a clock in a drive. It's just that they didn't bail on it, which, which I thought was smart, interesting. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm saying this not, you know, knowing that every team in the league can't do that. But because it was such a core competency, such a, such a big part of what Dallas did, if they would have said, oh, man, we're down by 10 or we're down by 14 and, well, Zeke, go throw it 50 times, I think this wouldn't, we would not have had the competitive end, end of this game, um, in my view. So, anyway, let's, let's sort of transition here out of – we've got these two games uh, now set up, the, the table's set for this championship weekend coming up. There was a couple in-week storylines I wanted to hit on as much as anything because I sort of sit – in the middle of the stew here in New England. And I'm always curious from sort of an outside national market view, uh, you know, you're doing your show with Bruce Murray on XM, on Sirius XM. Uh, you get, obviously, a national view talking to fans from all over the country. Um, one of the big stories here locally was this Roger Goodell not not attending the game thing. Uh, and it, it fires fans up here locally. You know, obviously, they want their, their pound of flesh. They just want to be able to see the guy and, and scream in his face and, you know, call him names and all that, maybe spit on him, but, you know, hopefully no violence. But, it, it's, <laughs> you know. but it, it certainly is something that, and I wouldn't say it's, it's I'd say the vast majority of people want him here because they want him to face the music and they they love to poke at him for sort of the phony excuses for not showing and got himself cornered a little bit here by going to Atlanta and the public excuse uh, two weeks ago and the, the public excuse was that hey we need to come here because it might be the final game in the Georgia Dome and then whoops oh there's only two more games left and that means I have to go back to Atlanta and still continue to to avoid New England which he has a home in Scarborough here Maine Scarborough Maine so he's kind of sort of from here and afraid to stop by but anyhow I'm just curious though you know I, I know what the views are here locally by and large I'm curious if that's something that on a national show that you're doing with Bruce or any of the stuff you do with CBS do people talk about this do people care about this I know I know sort of angst and loathing and all that for Roger Goodell is, is definitely not a exclusive to new England. I know people in Oakland and San Diego and Kansas city and, and Pittsburgh, and there's a lot of fan bases that don't love that dude, but is this something that people care about or do they give him shit as well? Or is it just whatever? That's a new England thing. I think it depends if it comes from an individual market, right? Like, like San Diego, for example, a, a team that's now moving after being down there for 50-some years, um, or even St. Louis, right, before the Rams moved, and, and, and Boston now because of the flake gate and everything. I don't know that people really care that much on, on the national stage. You know, when we're listening to callers call in, we'll point these sorts of things out, and no one really calls in to pick up on it. No one really calls in yeah. to kind of talk about why or, or break that down any further. So, you know, I think the average fan – probably just wants to digest their football and wants to talk about the players and talk about who they think is going to win and maybe some X's and O's. I, I don't know that they want to talk about Roger Goodell quite as much. I think they're, they're tired from Deflategate originally, just the fact that I think the two-year anniversary just took place but yesterday or the day before uh, when this all started. So I think they're just tired of hearing about anything other than football that deals with the NFL. Um, but, I mean, look, the fact that he's not going to be in Foxborough for, regardless of who wins, you know, both the Steelers and the Patriots are going to be the first team to essentially, uh, you know, get, get to nine trips to the Super Bowl. That's the, they'll be the, one of the first NFL franchises to do that. So it's a historical moment for the NFL. And, and you're talking about a commissioner who's not going to be there for it, not going to be there for 
this moment and or for the number one seed. I mean, you can kind of make the cop out of, oh, you're going to be down there in Atlanta and at the Georgia Dome for the last you know game that's <laughs> going to be played there in the NFL. There's always that. But I, I just think Roger Goodell may, wants the Patriots to earn it the long, hard way, and he's got the power to do so where he can kind of slide out from not having to go to Foxborough and he can make his way down to Houston and he can basically say, all right, you, you want to throw it back in my face, go in the Super Bowl. And you know, the, I'll, I'll be standing there on the uh, on the podium, handing you the Lombardi Trophy. But that's what it's going to take in order for me to have to put myself in a situation where I'm standing there amongst Robert Kraft, and Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady. Well, I, I think interestingly enough, I, I, and I, there's a lot of fans out here locally that 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 really want that moment. They want the trophy moment where Goodell's forced to hand it to him. And I think if you go back and look, even in uh, even in uh, in Arizona, when they when the when the Patriots beat the Seahawks in 2014 for that Super Bowl, there really wasn't a Goodell moment. You know, they, I think people want to see Roger hand it to him. I believe it was Jim Nance. I think it was CBS that was on the call that year. But yeah, that was actually handing the trophy. I don't even know if Roger made it to the stage. The, the The Roger moment was the next day when they do sort of that. You know, the the press conference thing after, and they I think Brady was Super Bowl MVP, and it was forced to. And there was a kind of an uncomfortable moment, but those are those, you know, sleepy next morning after the Super Bowl. Everyone's exhausted. It's not a big part of the media thing, but you know, I, I think there are obviously a lot of people that would love to see Goodell walked up on stage in shackles and have to you know clink 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 hand him the trophy and and then you know cry into a bowl of cereal or something, but I don't. That's I don't know if they're really going to get that moment necessarily. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm curious to see just you know locally. I know the person who, who runs the uh, the big screen here at, at Gillette, and I was always curious if they would. I mean, I know normally you would not antagonize a league, but this is such an odd situation where one of the thirty-two is just, you know, they've they've created websites uh, talking, you know, showing all the lies that Goodell has told. They've 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 been outwardly sort of campaigning against the the stuff the league has yeah. done. We learned a lot, and again, this whether or not the commissioner you know attends a game, we shouldn't be talking about this in any sport. But I thought it was sort of interesting. Uh, Jonathan Kraft is uh, Mr. Kraft, Bob Kraft's son, uh, had gave some insight when they were talking about this on the radio before the divisional game that commissioners aren't actually invited. You know, you don't send out birthday cards or something or an invitation to 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 come come stay at my stadium you know and then we'll we'll put up a suite it's just more the nfl making its announcement that they're going to arrive and you have to accommodate but it's not something that typically you know unless there's some sort of giant ceremony week to week to week wherever this wherever this guy goes it's not something that that usually the front offices of teams get involved in. So I thought that was kind of interesting when they said, hey, is Roger going to be here this week? And they said, I don't know. We don't really have anything to do with that. So um, Yeah, I, well, real, real quick, though, the, the interesting thing to this is if you think about, you know, Roger Goodell, how he's paid, he's paid by 31 owners and then a right. majority of ownership that owns the Packers. So in yeah. this particular weekend, though, if you've got to look, for example, you know, at any one of those bosses in the face, if you're going down to Atlanta, you're only going to see Arthur Blank who's yeah. the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. You're, you're not going to see this whole contingent or, or ownership group of the Green Bay Packers, right? I mean, that, right. that's hard to do because there's so many people involved. Sure. Um, so I guess if you're trying to show face to talk to your bosses, just for anyone out there who's in the working world, and let's say you technically have two, um, wouldn't you want to go to Foxborough? Because you're going to be seeing you know, the Rooney family. You're going to be seeing right. uh, Robert Kraft. You're going to be seeing two right. versus going to see one. So wouldn't you think that you're killing two birds with one stone trying to right. kind of do the right thing? And I talked about the historical moment. But just even from that aspect, like yeah. I, I would rather be you know, at that game just so I can talk to two of one, the, the most successful, influential 
owners and families that have been involved in the NFL for quite some time. And it's not that he didn't. Mr. Blank, uh, or, you know, it's just uh, that's just the fact of the matter is, is you've got one owner at, at a game versus two up there in Foxborough. Yeah, and I, I the, the reason I alluded earlier to the sort of scoreboard operator, the person who does sort of all the graphics and video stuff in in room, I, obviously the team has no problem at this point antagonizing the league. They've done what they have to do. They don't want to create distractions. I know that's obviously a big thing in New England, but I always just wondered for for shits and giggles. What if they just, you know, you're going to get broadcast video from the earlier game from Atlanta and, and Seattle or from, from Atlanta and Green Bay. Obviously, this has been a story. Uh, the broadcast, I'm sure at some point will allude to or show some sort of, you know, PR moment with Goodell up in a box, walking the field in pregame, whatever they do with commissioners. This is typical stuff and it's it's not really newsworthy usually. I think it would be interesting and, you know, I you know, teams tweak other teams or teams tweak other uh, other situations they think can help them. One of these red zone stops where you get a TV timeout or, or something in game where it's just a lull and you need a little emotion, man, a little broadcast photo or a little broadcast thing thrown up on the big screen of Roger hiding in Atlanta will make the top of Gillette go off. I mean, it's, it, I, I get a little bit goosebumps for that because I know how angry a lot of the people are around here. And if, if you wanted to create some artificial momentum, uh, you know, not be a distraction, there was no way to win going. There's going to be a distraction going here, going to be a distraction. There's no way to escape it. And I think that's sort of the microcosm that is Roger Goodell. Uh, this, this problem's his own, you know, leadership prevents this from happening. The biggest, the big boy thing to do, the non-cowardly thing to do would have been to show up on opening day that after they won the Super Bowl. It happens every single year. You go back to the venue, they play the opening Thursday night game, the commissioner's there, bing, bang, boom, and it's done. And so this isn't a story two years later. But, uh, you know, he hid for two years and, and created something that didn't need to be something a lot, like Deflategate. Wow, hey, guess what? We don't know how balls work. You guys don't even have a protocol. We're not going to spend millions of dollars like this and try to fabricate something. Again, making something of or making something huge out of nothing. Uh, this whole, is he going to attend a game? Who gives a rat's ass, really? But it became something because he made it something. And that's that, to me, is just poor decision-making. All right, I'll get off this and get into football. Sorry about that, folks, if you don't love that part. But it does aggravate me. Uh, so uh, we, one of the things here that, that you know, we should you – know, obviously, this is a very player-friendly show. It's all former players here talking. We're going to have Brady Papinga on here later, dropping his, uh, his thoughts in on these two championship games. But we should touch real quickly on this uh, – the Antonio Brown video thing just because it's sort of peak behind the locker room thing. And obviously, myself and Brady have lived our lives in in, in sports locker rooms and I, I, I Brady Propinga is actually going to touch on this in his his little video a bit earlier but I wanted to sort of get your reaction Brady to to Antonio Brown doing the Facebook thing the way the Steelers have handled in the aftermath I think pretty solid uh, any prediction from you that this should matter is this sort of a media creation or was it unwise I mean just where do you sort of fall on that whole deal I don't think it matters that much. I mean, did the, did the Patriots really need motivation going into a conference championship game, given all the motivation they have for what we just talked about a moment ago? But also right. the fact that it's a chance to play for a Super Bowl. I don't think when you strap on your helmet and you run out on that field, you're thinking, oh, yeah, remember that video Antonio Brown <laughs> broadcasted on Facebook Live? Like, no one's thinking about that. So right. as far as a motivating factor, I don't think it matters at all. It, it just is a bit telling, though. Uh, you know, maybe the culture there with the Pittsburgh Steelers and maybe something that Mike Tomlin needs to think about moving forward as far as how he governs his team because you've got a star, you've got a guy who's a leader who's not listening to him as a head coach and even Ben Roethlisberger who spoke after Mike Tomlin 
spoke. And, you know, Ben even said, he said, I'd rather him be up there listening to our head coach, listening to me talk. And, and that's the thing that you, you think is a bit absurd. If it was any other player on the back end of that 53-man roster, you think he'd still have a job? I mean, at the very least, he'd probably be suspended. I'm sure Brown will be fine, but he's not going to be suspended. And he's sure. still going to be on the team. But if you're talking about the 52nd man on a roster, that guy is gone. There's no chance. Him violating a team policy, an NFL policy, like he would still be on that team. So, you know, Antonio Brown gets the benefit of the doubt because he's that good, and they need him if they want any chance of beating the New England Patriots. Um, but it just goes to show you it's a little bit more of a lax culture there. Um, when you're looking at, you know, how the Pittsburgh Steelers run things. And that doesn't mean they can't have success. They've had plenty of success. I mean, like I said before, this will be the ninth, you know, Super Bowl run for either one of these teams um, that's able to win in the AFC Championship. So it just goes to show you there's more than one way to skin a cat. But I, I do believe it's just not something that I would want to see out of one of my wide receivers, especially a guy who's right. that impactful. I mean, where's his focus? Why isn't it on the team? Why isn't it on us and not everyone else out there in the rest of the world? Um, you yeah. just got to wonder if, if he lacks that. Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent point, and it's something that I think got lost in the shuffle. I think we do this a lot where we get some sort of piece of news from a locker room, from a, a quote that someone gives, from some, you know, anything around sort of the NFL universe over the course of 365 days. And this happens a lot where you can sort of take the block of text of what technically happened and i think we do this a lot where we focus on the wrong part uh the the part here that to me would would garner the most focus that should have gotten the headline is not that someone said assholes that's pretty typical i mean there's swearing is normal in the nfl guys i mean and and i i really actually do buy mike tomlin's explanation during the week that you know it's not it's not uh particularly reserved for New England. It's a word that everyone who's our enemy is one of those right now, you know, and it's something that, you know, we're going to use F word, this, you know, whatever throughout the course of a normal week anyway, uh, to, in reference to your opponent and, and not to deride and them specifically, it's just more than they're not us, that kind of thing. I, t- I totally get that point of view. And I think that's pretty normal. He wasn't BSing people. That's, that's, that's usual. But the, the thing that, that I found a little odd is that they would focus on, uh, you know, if Antonio Brown is selfish and all these other kind of things, and rather than whether or not he was social media or not, I thought the major issue is, hey, he wasn't listening to his coach in the most important, hey, we just won a monstrous game. Hey, we need to now focus on the next week. It was less of – I thought that's the story in real football circles, maybe not for, for the purposes of garnering a headline, but it was – and Ben touched on that. You said that, Brady, that you know the more upsetting thing here is that in our most sort of – hey, we just accomplished this together, and hey, here's what we need to do next. The guy wasn't listening to the coach or quarterback. I, I just found that a little more bizarre than, than you know anything they may have said that was a little bit tweaky to the other team. That's, that's, that's the football story, and I know the football story isn't always a headline. But anyway, I, you do hit the nail on the head there that this is not going to affect the game in any way, shape, or form. I thought the one little gripe that he said that, uh, in my view, Belichick might, you know, repeat during the week is not the not the assholes thing but more that that they're already making excuses for each other and that that the, the notion that said hey they've already got a day and a half lead on these assholes already have a day and a half lead or however it is they said it um you know he'll he will hammer that point i think he will at least mention it that hey we do have a lead and they're already making excuses for each other so we got to work doubly hard you know that kind of thing those are the kind of things that usually get regurgitated there and they'll pick on the thing that they think actually can help them which is not to be mad at them for saying something about you but hey 
they're already making excuses themselves. We got to work even harder. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that that'll usually get said here. Uh, moving on here now to the stuff that matters, the stuff we really got to get into, and that's these these two championship games. Let's head here on the field, and, and as sort of alluded before, what we've been doing these last several weeks, Brady Papenga out in L.A. at you know three four hours or whatever we are prior to us right now he's he's laying in bed but he sent us his files and we wanted to make sure we got his views uh into this as well so first we're going to let brady papinga touch here on this patriot steelers game the patriot steelers game is going to be one where many people are going to think that a big theme going into this game is that the new england patriots have had taped up all over their locker rooms and bulletin boards and in their meeting rooms and everywhere they turn at the urinals, all of these quotes that Mike Tomlin had said this last week about the New England Patriots, and that's going to be the source of their motivation. That is flat out laughable. I would say, and, and Matt would know this better than anybody, but the New England Patriots are already focused in on what they have to do and all this other stuff that's going on about what people are saying about them. I mean, this has been going on for how many years? 15 years? This isn't anything new for the Patriots. So there's no added motivation for this game. The motivation in and of itself is simply win the championship and move on to the Super Bowl. And I would imagine that the professional focus that the Patriots had for the 15 years leading up to now will continue into this game. And they're going to be more concerned with what their job description is, what it's going to take to win this game than what was said about them. Especially when you consider all that's said about the Patriots on a weekly basis from cheating to whatever it is. And I find that laughable that all of a sudden they got this newfound motivation just because of Antonio Brown's Facebooking his head coach calling the New England Patriots a-holes. I mean, that's just, you know, laughable in my mind. But, hey, it's, it makes for great banter, and it's entertaining to think of that. But that this game between the Patriots and the Steelers is going to come down to one simple thing. Can the Steelers score points? Can they get touchdowns instead of field goals? Because the New England Patriots defense, to me right now, is playing better than the Kansas City Chiefs defense. A. B. Going into Foxborough is a lot more difficult than going into Kansas City. And so if you couldn't generate touchdowns and points in Kansas City, that would be my biggest concern if I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, is how do we, when we get into the red zone, convert those trips into touchdowns? And that's where Antonio Brown's going to have to be on his A game. Le'Veon Bell's going to be on his A game. But I would imagine being the New England Patriots, they're going to take those two guys away and make Sammy Coates, Jesse James, those other kind of complimentary pieces of the Pittsburgh Steelers have to rise up and make plays, especially in those critical moments when they get down to the red zone, talking about that Pittsburgh Steelers offense. Defensively for Pittsburgh, you got to somehow create disruption in Tom Brady. They don't have a guy like Merciless Whitney or a Jadavian Clowney where they can have him floating around, exploiting any weakness on that New England Patriot offense, thus getting pressure on Tom Brady to maybe force him into mistakes or to somewhat slow down what could be a very explosive offense of the New England Patriots. That Steelers defense, in my mind, I don't look at them in the same light I look at Steelers defenses in the past, especially the ones that were the catalysts in their Super Bowl championship runs. And I look at this defense as being one that Tom Brady is going to dice, he's going to slice, and they are going to have problems stopping him and somehow slowing him down. And that, to me right there, already is a telling sign of how this game is going to go. It's going to go like most of the games have with between the Steelers 
and the, uh, the New England Patriots, and that is that most likely the Patriots are going to come out of this on top, and I'm taking the Patriots in this one. I don't think the, the Steelers can stop Tom Brady, and I don't know if they're going to be able to generate enough points when they get down to the red zones against a, a very strong and stout defense that, by the way, in the Patriots was one of the best in, in giving up points throughout the whole season, which, by the way, is the number one stat in defining and ranking defenses. Forget the yardage given up. All right, so in Brady's views here is is really kind of what we just spent a lot of time there talking about, that, that get the Brown-Tomlin stuff out of your head. That's that's not game motivation. It's not going to matter. It's good that it was addressed early in the week and sort of put to bed. Uh, but the Steelers, can they get touchdowns or field goals? Brady touched on that. I made a video specifically for that here for, for Football by Football. Check that out on the Facebook or web, Facebook page or web website or YouTube page, any of those places. The video's up. This idea of whether they're going to be able to score touchdowns or field goals. I mean, that's what everyone is talking about. I think it's its the most pressing issue that they, has to be addressed. Steelers people don't know the answer to it. National people don't know the answer to it. It's its one of the biggest things that I think that will get answered in game. Uh, Brady here also touches on the idea that other guys got to make a play. We, we'll talk about three Bs till we're, you know, till we're dead in the grave. Everyone understands how good those people are, you know, from Brown to Bell and back to Ben. But, are they going to be able to find production in another place? I think it's a it's a really it's a really important point. It's something that sort of we'll be tracking throughout the game here. Obviously, as I'm at the thing, it's like where are they going to find that other production and can they? Uh, and I think his his going away point there that Tom Brady is going to slice and die this slice and dice the Steelers defense. It's something that I think is sort of growing at least in this market. That hey, we get past the point of sort of jabbing and start to understand who the opponents are. And you you become a little less scared as you look a little deeper, and I think that's that's really who these the Steelers defense is. But you still got to respect the hell out of them. So to you, Brady, uh, really sort of big takeaway thoughts, deciding factors, all those kind of things when you look really hard here at this Patriots Steelers game. Well, let's start with one of the narratives that's getting thrown out there, um, and it's in regards to the Patriots being the number one scoring defense, and people will kind of. You know, refute that saying, well, look at the quarterbacks that they played. You know, look at their strength of schedule. And and people want to point out almost as if the New England Patriots, one, can really control who they play in the NFL, which can any team do that? No, of course not. The NFL sets the schedule. If teams are good year in, I mean, that's, that's up to that individual team. And if you actually look at the strength of schedule in the NFL and the 32 teams that are there, the there's two teams tied at the top, but I can't remember off top of my head, I want to say maybe Seattle had one of the toughest strengths of schedules, but anyway, you're looking at the number one strength of schedule versus the number 32. Here's the difference in the win-loss percentage. The number one team has played a uh, strength of schedule of like 550, okay? The 32nd team in the NFL, the win-loss percentage of their opponents was 450, all right? So you're talking about basically... (laughs) You know, a 10%, 100%, I mean, however you want to go about doing it, but a 10% variance in strength schedule. There's not much. This is the NFL. There's only 32 teams. So you can throw that narrative out the window. There's 128 in college football. I get why it matters then. It doesn't matter in the NFL. So people need to stop using that as some sort of way of uh, trying to debunk the fact that the Patriots are just a really good, solid, all-around defensive football team. So let's talk about that matchup. Uh, Brady Papinga and everyone else out there is right. You know, and you know this, Matt, from playing for the New England Patriots. 
Bill Belichick will make you win with your third or fourth option. He's not going to let Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown beat you. And you can go back at their prior matchup and look at the production. You know, Brown went over 100 yards, didn't score a touchdown. Bell had a pretty decent game, but it was Landry Jones at the starting quarterback position. So how much of an impact, you know, that'll have, I think it'll be a big impact as far as what Big Ben can do, both the fact that he's a little bit more mobile, but also, you know, he's just he's a better quarterback. So the bottom line is, Right. I think they're going to look to Jesse James and Eli Rogers. Those are the two guys in my mind that I think they're going to try to find ways of having those guys get production because they, I do believe Malcolm Butler is going to match up with Antonio Brown for the most part. And if not, they'll probably roll coverage to his side, meaning a corner safety over top of them. And then I think they're going to you know, try to load the box and stop the run. And, and that's essentially how they'll go about, you know, game planning for these guys. And, you know, if, if they're not going to play a, a single high look where Malcolm Butler's matched up in man-to-man coverage on Brown, to me it'll be the role coverage where they're playing cover two to that side and they'll be playing quarter, you know, quarters to the other side. And that safety on that side will probably be pretty nosy in the run game. So that's kind of how, you know, I, I see this, this game going maybe a little bit more. And if I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, I want to do a number of things. One, I need to move around Antonio Brown to make it a lot harder uh, exactly. to then roll coverage to him. So uh, then it forces the Patriots to sit there and say, well, if we want to get the matchup we want, we have to put Malcolm Butler on him wherever he goes. So we have to play more man-to-man coverage. That allows Todd Haley to do a bunch of different things with rub routes, mesh routes, crossing routes, things that the, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers already do. And then there's the running game. But it's also you know, a little bit more difficult when you're moving Le'Veon Bell around because he's a good pass catcher out of the backfield. So maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers actually give the Patriots a dose of their own medicine. We've seen before how useful Deion Lewis and James White are coming out of the backfield, catching the football, and out as a wide receiver catching the football. Maybe the Steelers do kind of the same thing to the New England Patriots. Um, again, you know, Jamie Collins isn't there anymore. You know, I, I don't know how um, how good you know everyone else is in coverage. Jamie Collins was one of the best, in my opinion, as far as a guy who could split out and cover pretty much anyone at the tight end or running back in the league. Um, you know, out, out, outside of the box. So some interesting stories of how that'll be played at least as far as the New England Patriots defense versus the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, on offense. Now, you, when you kind of switch things and flip sides, I would say this. You know, if Malcolm um, Mitchell can play, that'll be a huge boost, in my opinion, yeah. to the Patriots offense. And I think if you look at the weakness of the Steelers, I mean, it's clearly their secondary. It's not just because Sean Davis and Artie Burns are rookies. It's the fact that they never played on the stage before. They're inexperienced. And I don't know, um, really, besides the earlier matchup in the season, um, that, that they've seen anyone quite as good as Tom Brady. Um, so if you're looking at now how you go about, you know, trying to, you know, basically have, you know, put up some big plays in production against the Steelers, I don't know if they're going to try to run the ball a ton. If they do, it's really just to kind of give the, the element of you were running the football. Um, but the Steelers' defense ever since their bye has been one of the best defenses in the NFL in stopping the run. So I think it's purely in there just to set up the play-action pass. And besides that, I, I would want to spread them out and I would want to try to, you know, utilize my matchup on the inside of Julian Edelman or, or Chris Hogan if he plays. You know, they targeted Michael Floyd a decent amount last week, the late addition that was released by the Arizona Cardinals. Um, and I think they just need to kind of go away from that. I don't think he's, you know, going to be able to get the system in time to be as impactful as I think Josh McDaniels would like him to be and Tom Brady would like him to be. So I, would, I, I think if Malcolm Mitchell is healthy, that would be the guy that I'd be trying to get the ball, you know, to more outside of Bennett and Edelman and Hogan and, and, the, and Deion Lewis and the rest of the crew. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. The, the X factor to me, though, is Bud Dupree and what kind of impact he can have. Right. He's really turned it on towards the second half of the season, you know, rushing the passer. And I think we've sure. seen him a little bit in the playoffs, too. So 
you know, how did the Patriots go about trying to protect, you know, Tom versus James Harrison, who's, I guess works out 24-7. I'm not sure if you saw that video he posted, but he was, in the, he was in the weight room off of the team plane after they beat Kansas City, after the whole locker room talk about how they're down a day and a half. He, yeah. he didn't miss any time. He doesn't care that they're, they're you know, a day and a half less. Um, he, he was, was literally – on. he was benching while Antonio Brown was doing the Facebook Live video. So <laughs> Yeah, he was, he, was already, he was already squatting and benching and <laughs> – and, and, and look, I'm not saying the guy takes steroids, but I, I don't know anyone else who's work at all. humanly possible to just work out like that 24/7, unless he's you know a, a robot or an alien. So it's maybe maybe he's just one of those two. But anyway, you know those two guys are going to be the main concern in pass protection. You know Josh um, McDaniel, as far as scheme wise, is as bright of a mind as there is in the NFL. You know Dante Scarnecchia. So you know they're going to put together a game plan to limit those two. So I don't think they'll be able to have much of an impact. Uh, but but that's kind of what I'm looking forward to seeing is really seeing how they go about attacking, um, you know, Sean Davis and Artie Burns uh, and even William Gay. I mean, William Gay has kind of been hit or miss this year, in my opinion, as far as playing on the outside. Uh, but how did they go about, uh, go about attacking this Pittsburgh Steelers secondary? Uh, with who did they do that with? You know, again, Malcolm Mitchell's health being, you know, important. And then really the pass protection up front because I don't think they're going to run the ball a ton. Yeah, that to me is sort of the – the, the the fifty million dollar question or whatever whatever the whatever the saying is there because this always happens with the Patriots this is something that I had to you know I, I knew as a player there it's something that when I was opponent for a few years the Jets we'd always sort of you know you're always postulating what are they going to do the second time around and the Patriots are notorious for scheming opposite of what they did the first time it's like you'll get run past splits that are just on their head the next time you face them um, and this was a big run game for the Patriots and they went down to Heinz but now maybe that's in part because of what's going on on the other side you know you don't have Ben and you have Landry Jones or, or maybe it's just simply a, a an indication of what they felt for the defensive front of the Steelers who are playing much better now than they were back in October but it was a 30 carry game uh, blunt you know that Cumulatively, they went for over 140 yards, uh, two touchdowns on the ground. They really beat them up, and a lot of good situational running there. And uh, I was, I was, I'm, I'm half curious if it is that or if it's not. I, I don't know. It just, I guess, it might depend in part coming in with sort of a plan, seeing how Pittsburgh reacts uh, initially in the first couple of series offensively. If for some reason they hang a score earlier, well, then maybe it does change your mo. But I've also seen Coach Belichick do this with with Miami Dolphins is always sort of a famous team that he had a certain and it just again it also depends on what year we're talking here but I'm thinking of a couple sequences where the perception of of his offensive line versus your defensive line won't change between September and January or February and or I'm sorry in December in this example but he's going to face that front the same way. He believes he can run the football on you. Uh, he just needs to change how he goes about doing it. It might mean more sub runs rather than regular. It might mean doing it from a different personnel group. But it may stick with the concept, just build it a different way. But the key theme there is that I believe I can run on you. I always believe I can run on you. And it's not so much that I can. It's that I need to to prevent other things that could be a problem for me. So I'm I'm curious. They may I, they may run the football. The one thing that they did not have then uh, they didn't have uh, Lewis. You know, Lewis was Deion Lewis wasn't a big part of things, and he was a big part of last week's game plan against Houston. So if you're game planning, uh, you know, 
uh, you're going to look back at the old film some, but you're also going to say, hey, this is a little bit different team now. James White had a touchdown in that first game, but through the air. Uh, LeGarrette Blunt had a huge game on the ground. Now Deion Lewis is in, and his run splits or his playtime percentage is probably, I think, higher than Blunt's a week ago, but also Blunt was coming off an illness. So if you're trying to, you know, if you're the Steelers, and you're trying to sort of glean what the Patriots might do to you, watching the Houston tapes a little weird because uh, they've faced, a different challenge in that defense than yours. So I think that is definitely one of the biggest questions of how they'll approach it. Uh, you touched on something that I think is, 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 is interesting, and it's something a lot of people up here are talking about, what the wide receiver mix is going to be, how the Patriots will attack that defense. And Michael Floyd had his big breakout game a couple weeks ago for the Patriots in in Miami, right? And the first thing that popped into my head is like, this guy, yes, he played in Notre Dame. He played in the cold up there in Indiana years, years and years ago when he was in college. But he spent most of his professional career in Arizona uh, in you know moderate temperatures and able to play in usually warm conditions. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the dudes that come up from Miami and have to come up here later in the year. And we always see, it's always tough to see that the skill position guys replicate what they just did in South Beach. It always happens. And I saw Michael Floyd, you know, it's the toughest thing in the world. It's not to knock this guy whatsoever, but it's the toughest thing in the world to go to a new franchise, pick up the offense in a minute. And this ain't an easy one for a wide receiver because it's a lot of conversion and route. It's a lot of, you know, seeing something in the tree or from the cover and then being able to convert the route and be on the same page with Brady. All that stuff is tough. Uh, and he went from a place where, you know, he goes and has his big breakout game in the kind of conditions that are a little similar to Arizona. And he comes up here and had a ball handling issue, had a holding penalty. You know, he has he sort of volleyed the ball that was a, not a perfectly thrown ball, but still damn, you know, very catchable because it hits his hands, not his tips. And uh, volleys it up in the air. And I'm thinking, man, that's just that to me looks like what happens with warm weather receivers and they come up here for the first time. There's an acclimation process. So you can't necessarily go target the dude 10 times. It's, it's a bit of a risk. You might want to get with the dudes that have been living and working and their blood's thickened in this area. Uh, But the one thing that I thought was interesting is there was some post game sound that came out, uh, I think from Patriots.com or one of the places up here where they, they showed Brady going specifically beelining directly in the locker room post game to Michael and saying, we're going to need a big week out of you next week. You know, basically don't go in the tank. Doing the good quarterback leader thing. Now, the reason I think that's interesting is because I think Michael will still be heavily involved in packages. I just don't know if he'll be heavily involved in targets. You you touched on Malcolm Mitchell. That's one of the big sort of sneaky big stories up here because we haven't seen him for a few weeks. And he is a rookie. He's been injured. But when he's been up, man, he's been he's been sort of hinting at being special kind of thing. Had some big games. Uh, but you just don't know where he's going to be at physically. So I think the reason I the reason receiver mix matters so much to the Patriots right now is because Chris Hogan got banged up in last week's game as well, a air quotes thigh injury that was deemed non-serious. He's limited practicing now. He seems to be fine. He'll be back. But you know those, Brady, when you've got a, a soft tissue thing of some sort that maybe wasn't that big of a deal, but then you go back out in the cold weather the next week, you go in knowing at any moment that could tweak again. So the depth issue becomes a real big thing. So for some reason, Malcolm Mitchell can't be a part of the day. They just don't feel he's ready or up to speed or they're going to bring him to game day, but he's going to be like, you know, a 10 to 15 rep guy in just special packages. Then Michael Floyd does have to be part of it. Just, you know, the tweak happens with Chris again, or you just don't feel comfortable giving him 40 reps. Michael's going to have to be out there, and and the reason I think he's an interesting player, even if he's not getting targets, is because the on-field mix, in my view, of Edelman, Floyd, 
Malcolm and Chris is probably one of the best run blocking groups of wide receivers in the NFL. It's one I've never done a video this year for FBF, but I'd, I'd love to. There are some; those are some little pit bulls. They those guys block well, and I'm mean, obviously Michael's not little; he's a big guy. But I think that is sort of an interesting add-in to this offense that that people don't often look at. You think, oh, he's going to catch touchdowns and go routes and stuff. But for some of this perimeter running and for some of the catch and run pass plays, those guys have been huge in, in adding on extra yards. So having Michael come down and crack on a safety, having him sort of tie up a linebacker for some of these edge edge sort of catch and run plays to Edelman or Amendola or whatever it may, whatever it may be, I still think these guys are going to going to have a big role. Uh, I wanted to kind of throw this question back to you because, you know, you're as a former quarterback You've had to deal with this quite a bit, uh, you know, going from one climate to the next, going from one environment to the next. Is there any sort of particular, I don't know, precautions or getting out on the field early or talc powder on your hands or you do the one glove, no glove thing or any kind of ball preparation uh, as far as, you know, getting your tack right or getting sort of pregame work in? It looked to me, and I, I threw this out here because I, it looked to me like, Ben was uncomfortable last week, and he's a cold weather guy. It's not like that it had been an issue, but he just never looked comfortable. And I'm, I'm curious if when you come up to a place like this, if there's any sort of things you add into your routine or something like that, because you know, obviously handing the ball is such a big part of your job. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think when the weather got cold enough, I never liked wearing a glove in my throwing hand, and, and there's some quarterbacks who have adapted to that. I think you know, Ben's adapted to that a little bit over the course of his career, but definitely on my offhand because you want to provide a warmth and a sense of feeling. And at least if you're under center, you know, the ball is always supposed to hit your top hand. So if you're a right-handed quarterback, that would be the one that, you know, it, 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 the ball is being snapped up to. The laces should be hitting your fingertips about in the spot where you'd want to grip it to then throw. Uh, but your bottom hand's not, it shouldn't be getting hit. That's That's kind of your clasp hand. So, that one tends because, you know, that pop of the football, it actually brings blood circulation. It actually helps keep your hand warmer. Um, that, right. you know, because you have the consistency of that, usually um, you're receiving the snap, you don't, you're not technically feeling like that hand's quite as cold. Your offhand is. That's why you put, a, you know, a glove on that hand, glove, yeah. and it helps you kind of secure the football and all that. Um, aside from that, I mean, the interesting thing about Kansas City and playing out there is, and just from spending a year there, it's, it's drier than people think. It's got a v- huge variance in, you know, the, the amount of humidity there can be in the summer and then how dry it can get sometimes. And that was something that I thought, you know, as far as throughout the course of the week, the ball preparation and which balls you'd want to pick for the game, it was, it was you know, almost tough depending on where we were playing or if we were playing at home and then what time of year it was, how much tact that you really want to try to – to get on the football as far as, as far as brushing them in and kind of almost, you know, baking them and trying to get that dark brown leather that then releases that tack that allows you to have a little bit better grip, in particular when it gets cold out. Because when it gets cold out, you can't feel as much on your hands, so you need to enhance the feeling or grip of the football as best you can. So for a visiting team that's not accustomed to playing there, it can be kind of difficult at times because you'll break in the football like normal, and it actually might still feel a little bit slick to you because um, there's that film that's you know always comes on the footballs when you first get them when they're brand new, right. like and then you got to brush them in and work them in. So you know being able to understand that you know type of environment you're playing, in, I don't think that's going to be quite as an issue in Foxborough because it tends to be a little bit more I'm not going to say humid, but just it's more of a moist climate, so the football should be fine. Um, but 
Yeah, I think if you if you're Ben, the biggest thing is you know always just getting adjusted to the wind and the way the wind affects different stadiums. You know, again in Arrowhead, there's a bit more of a swirling wind at times. I don't think the wind was as much of a factor in that game, at least from the initial weather reports. I don't know if it picked up throughout the course, but every stadium is different. You know, for example, um, you know, just just from doing a game week 17 out in um, Santa Clara for the 49ers, talking with the kickers and talking with the quarterbacks, there's there's the way the wind enters the stadium. It creates a counterclockwise swirling wind. So they basically said if you're on the right hash and you're kicking, you're with the wind. Uh, if you're basically going in one direction, but if you're on the left hash, you're going against the wind. So it changes how you have to kick the football. It changes if you're a quarterback, your touch on the football, on your deep routes, depending on which side of the field you're throwing to and from, you know, from um, which hash you're throwing from because it's going to change the way the wind pushes the football a little bit. So I thought that was pretty interesting, and that's usually something that you kind of get a feel for as you go out there in pregame warm-ups, especially this time of year when there's a little bit more wind, just to get a sense of feel for what kind of impact it could have throughout the course of the game. I think that's interesting, and the reason I sort of teed it to you is 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 because we we don't talk about it enough, but it ends up being a factor. It's sort of ball security and handling quarterbacks one position. I gave that to you because that's your that's your spot. But I think with backs and receivers, it, it's something that doesn't get talked about. That but ends up you look back on times where ball handling is an issue in playoff games, and it does come into play quite a bit up here. And and you you touched on the kicking aspect of it as well as well these points end up deciding games. So it's something we'll, we'll sort of keep an eye on here. The reason I thought it was big beyond just that it always is big is the ball was on the ground a couple times in Pittsburgh during the year. And one of the stories here locally uh, coming out of that Patriots Steelers game is, Hey, yes, the Patriots were able to win 27, 16 comfortably in that game. But uh, they put the ball on the ground twice. There was a Chris Hogan fumble, and then Julian Edelman fumbled on a punt return later in the game. So the idea that the Patriots gave it up twice and were still able to win comfortably on the road in a tough place, that was that was sort of a side story. And then now uh, last week against Houston, the rarity of all rarities, the Patriots turn it over three times and still win uh, big, and, and that's that's difficult to do. Uh, Patriots have – it's probably something I believe is going to be hammered quite a bit in this week that, hey, man, you can't put it on the ground twice like you did in Pittsburgh early in the season. You certainly can't do what you did last week. Deion Lewis actually had the ball on the ground three times, uh, twice uh, twice that were deemed fumbles, one lost. He also had one on a, I think it was a kick return earlier in the game where his elbow was down and the ball came out. But the, what Bill will see, what Coach Belichick will see is, hey, it was in your hand and three times later it wasn't, right? So I think this is something that both Pittsburgh will be hammering on quite a bit about getting balls out, about securing balls, about everything being two-handed and, and covered up and the Patriots conversely having a lot of ball focus as well because Ben has been getting balls batted at the line quite a bit uh they've been having they've had, they had more troubles I think than than you would typically expect with connecting on some of those exterior uh, those those routes outside the numbers between Brown and Ben some of the ball sailed on them a little bit in in Kansas City that's in part why I sort of asked the question about you know grip and things like that it looked like you know he's an accurate thrower obviously he's one of the best but there were several moments on some of those back shoulder plays where, where, where Brown sort of reverses out where you saw a ball sail that I don't usually see sail with him. And you saw them have sort of having some difficulty connecting on stuff I normally see them connect on. And maybe that being a factor in some of their effectiveness in the high and red and moving in. But I think ball security is going to be a big part of this formula. Sort of my going away point, though, on what I think the Patriots – 
need to hammer upon to to sort of double down on some of the successes they had early in the year. Not so much that you know you get to continue from that point, but more that what they learned from that. They had a lot of production uh, with with uh, Rob Gronkowski and the running game in that thing. You can't replicate that, most likely. You have a different running back mix. The Steelers are going to counter with something, hopefully to mute any running game you do. It may mean it pushes you more to sub-running, and you obviously don't have Gronk now. Uh, Martellus Bennett has been a quiet and you know very important player, even when he's not getting uh, uh, touches because his run blocking is so exceptional, his pass blocking is exceptional. I'm sneaky curious if he moves into that role of a 68 target guy because he needs to be. And you look, I, I, in my argument anyway, Travis Kelsey had several plays in that game. He had the big drop, but he also had a, a couple big plays in the middle of the field that kept things going for Kansas City and kept that competitive. I think it's a vulnerability that 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 Houston, uh, excuse me, that the Steelers have. Super athletic linebackers, they float their drops quite a bit, sometimes five, six, seven yards beyond first down depth. They love to sort of fly all over the place, but I think it creates holes. I'm curious that the Patriots go back to that and try to hammer on it. It's really difficult to predict what the offense focus is going to be other than Jules because we kind of don't know who's going to be up and active and I think that'll that'll play a big factor but ball security has to be there the Patriots are going to keep playing with fire and go put the ball on the ground two or three times I think you bring the the Steelers back within fighting range but that's where the focus are going to be I think that'll go a long ways towards settling this thing if you can give me that they're going to be back to normal regular season levels of a ball security I think there's a good chance this one won't be close. Uh, it could be a two-score win for the Patriots and on to the Super Bowl. So we need to hit on the other game. Obviously, a monster matchup here with the uh, Packers and Falcons. Uh, just sort of your off-the-top thoughts of how this thing will go down, what needs to be sort of the major area of focus. For me, I, I'll try to be quick on this one because I know uh, we were a little lengthy with the AFC Championship game. I think everyone wants to talk about the quarterback play, and, and I think – I want to rather talk more about the defenses that they're going up against because yeah. in Dan Quinn's system, it's a bit more simplified. It's kind of had Seattle Seahawks, majority post-high safety defense, some man, some zone, some match zone where essentially the outside cornerbacks are matching up on the outside. The inside you know, guys will match as well, but if there's crossing routes, they'll pass those off, and there's various ways in which they play that zone coverage in the deep thirds. Um, so – for the Packers, I feel like you know an offense that primarily consists of isolated routes, meaning you know you don't see a whole lot of bunches and stacks and these huge shifts and all that. They kind of right. get up to the line and they go. Um, I think that gives them the ability, since it's a simplified defense, uh, for one of two things: to work those matchups and, and isolations, because you don't have to focus so much on a bunch of moving parts from the defense or concerns about your protection, et cetera, based on the looks that you're getting and the coverages that you're getting. Because you essentially know what your coverage is going to be, at least on the outside for the most part. It's going to be one-on-one. Uh, and the other aspect of it, too, is it's just, you know, from a game planning standpoint, I think, you know, they're not going to be able to utilize that, get up to the line and play fast and, and catch, you know, like, for example, the Dallas Cowboys subbing, which Aaron Rodgers did multiple times. I would assume that because Dan Quinn – knows that he saw it last week. They're not going to be able to give them free yards and free plays. That was something that the Seattle Seahawks are big on too in their system is trying to, you know, try to see if they can, you know, call them offside and get a free play here and there. I just I can't see the Atlanta Falcons allowing that to happen the way their defense is played. However, you've got a young pass rusher in Vic Beasley, so maybe he will get a little overzealous and they'll be able to take advantage of it. But uh the, the one thing I'll be curious to see though is if they can win 
those isolated routes mm. because they've struggled at times this year. And Jordy Nelson is going to be playing in this game. It's going to be Randall Cobb, Devontae Adams, and Jerry Cook's going to have to step up. You know, maybe uh, Richard Rodgers, as you kind of, you know, I'd mentioned earlier with his big play versus Sean Lee earlier last week, maybe he has an impact as well. But those guys are going to have to largely win those one-on-one matchups. And we'll see. Uh, we'll see if they can do it for, you know, a, a second straight week. And really since, really since Jordy Nelson's been out, we'll see if they're going to be capable of doing that. But on the flip side, Matt Ryan, a guy who's never been to a Super Bowl, who's had an all-pro, probably the MVP of the league this year, so a tremendous season. You know, he's going to have to deal with a, a, a bunch more looks from Dom Capers, the defensive coordinator of the Green Bay Packers. It will be a variety of looks between coverage, blitzes, fronts, different things that him and Alex Mack, their center, are going to have to deal with as far as how they're going about deciding who's rushing, who's not, and what coverages are being played and where his, where his matchups are. Now, he's afforded the opportunity to have possibly one of the great, best trios of wide receivers in the NFL, right. in Julio Jones, arguably the best wide receiver, uh, next to Mohamed Sanu and then Taylor Gabriel, who's had an unbelievable year uh, coming over from Cleveland. So he's got three guys that really he can essentially work through his progression, and they'll all be able to get him production. That's why I don't know that it's going to quite matter as much, this variation of looks besides this. If they get after Matt Ryan, he's not as mobile as Rodgers is. So I think they can get some negative plays, tip passes, uh, hurries, things of that nature to disrupt this prolific offense and his passing game. And and that's where I think the pressure might be more on Matt Ryan in that respect than maybe Aaron Rodgers, only because for Rodgers, I think he largely is going to know what to expect. He's been here before. He's won a Super Bowl. And for Ryan, even though he's been to an NFC Championship game before, uh, he hasn't won one. And I think he's going to see a more variety of looks and you've got that matchup of Jake Matthews going up against possibly his brother at times, Clay yeah. Matthews, coming off the edge. And I think if there has been a shaky part of that offensive line, at least in the recent weeks or recent weeks, it's been Jake Matthews. Um, so you've you got to think that maybe Clay has the, uh, has, has the better edge of the two <laughs> uh, but between the brothers. But that's kind of how I, I kind of would break down the defenses that each of these quarterbacks is preparing for. Well, interestingly enough, here we we uh, before we before I dive into my take, I should uh, we should drop in Brady Papenga here. He had some really interesting thoughts in this game. So here's Brady on this uh, this particular NFC Championship matchup. Now with the Packers and the Atlanta Falcons, this is going to be one entertaining game. Now the Patriots and the Steelers game for sure, but the the Falcons and the Packers, I mean, two explosive offenses against two very suspect defenses generally means high point production from both sides of the ball. And then you ask, and everybody's asking this whole week, you know, how do you stop the Packers offense? How do you stop the Atlanta Falcons offense? And I don't know, especially from the Packers defense, or excuse me, from the Atlanta Falcons defensive perspective, if they have a way of stopping Aaron Rodgers, especially if he continues to play at the level that he has shown over the last eight weeks. And in the Dallas game, I thought was a phenomenal example of that with Manarinelli, I mean, basically whipping through a Rolodex of every possible defense he could think of, whether it was six-man pressures, overload pressures, okay, now we're going to drop eight, we're going to go with the spy, we're going to rush four, drop seven, run man, run zone. Uh, I mean, he did everything you could possibly imagine from a defensive end to try to somehow just slow that offense down or contain Aaron, and it didn't do anything. And so 
And I would imagine Atlanta's going to come out with the same. They're going to run their cover three and their variations of cover three, maybe throwing some exotic blitzes in there to catch Aaron off guard. But I don't believe that's going to be enough. And for me, that means that if you're the Atlanta Falcons, you're Dan Quinn, you're that defensive brain trust. What you're doing is you're going into your offensive meeting. You're saying, guys, we need to work together here. You know, we would like to pretend that we can go out there and contain Aaron, but we can't. And so we need to limit his opportunities. We need to limit his possessions. So please be methodical. Be uh, an offense that uses the running game heavily, that uses short passing games, that controlled high percentage passing games to where we, we still can score points, but we do it in a way to where we control the clock enough to where we could take a couple of possessions away from the average 10 or 11 possessions that most offenses get on a week-in, week-out week basis from Aaron. And then hopefully we, we keep him on the silence enough to where he can get a little antsy and, and, and then all of a sudden feel like he's got to force some stuff. So right now I'd say the Atlanta Falcons' best chance of slowing down Aaron is just somehow keeping him on the sideline. They have the guys to do it. And Tevin Coleman and Devontae Freeman, a heck of an offensive line in front with that zone-blocking scheme. And then Matt Ryan, he's been perfect in terms of decision-making, especially his last week against the Seattle Seahawks. I don't believe he made one mistake. And he was on time, on target, precise throws, uh, gashing that Seattle defense uh, that sorely missed Earl Thomas. Now, on the other side of the ball, when you look at the Packers, they have an ability in terms of scheme flexibility to cause Matt Ryan at least somewhat of a, a challenge in the sense of to they want to make him have to make decisions as to what's being presented to him after the snap. So disguise is going to be huge for the Packers defense. Dom is one of the best ever in the game of football of uh, being able to disguise defenses. He's the godfather of the zone blitz, came up with the zone blitz which is the, the, the old-school base way to be able to disguise a defense, to not allow that quarterback to know where's that fourth rusher coming from, who's going to be the seventh dropper. That's what Dom's going to have to do, and he's going to have to have a lot of different variations. But in terms of executing it, you've got to be extremely disciplined. You cannot show your gar- cards too soon, and they have to be able to make Matt Ryan make a choice after the ball is snapped, of what's being run instead of, I know what the I know what's being run, I know where I'm going, snap the ball. It's got to be, I think I know where they're going, snap the ball. Okay, now this is where they're going, now where i got to go. So after the snap, you got to make him make at least two more decisions. That then increases the probability that maybe he makes a mistake. But again, I don't know if the Packer defense is still going to be able to slow down Matt Ryan in that well-oiled machine of the Atlanta Falcons. High-scoring game. But I'm taking Aaron Rodgers. I will never bet against the guy, ever, ever, ever bet against him because I do believe he is the kind of guy that when the stakes rise, he just gets better. And I anticipate that happening again, and I'm going to pick the Packers up against Atlanta Falcons. All right, and here Brady is really sort of hammering on what I think a lot of people have been talking about, just this idea that the, the Atlanta is going to be exotic, uh, but they really need to be methodical. I think a lot in the same way that that we taught that Brady sort of teed up Packers Cowboys a week ago. One of these two teams trying to figure out a way to limit possessions for the other side. I think that's a really an interesting idea. It's just the question that we'll all not know until after is who's going to be able to pull it off. I think that's certainly. The goal, it's just sort of the doing is the hard part. Uh, the zone blitz scheme stuff I think is really interesting. Uh, Brady brings up some cool points there about what Dom Capers does and sort of what his MO is about hiding. And I really think uh, hiding defenders, uh, who's coming, who's not, that kind of thing. It, it, and I, I kind of like this idea that 
who's going to make more mistakes may invariably be what decides this. And I, I kind of sit where Brady sits there and that, you know what, who's going to prompt more mistakes? I think we both have general faith. I think the America has general faith that both of these two places can score. I think it kind of will come down to, to who can prompt a possession or two back the other direction. And I, I, it's probably a more historical bias. And, you know, if, if Matt Ryan gets over this hurdle and advances to a Super Bowl, I won't think these things anymore. But I, I just do sort of have this, again, sort of ingrained bias that that uh, from past experiences that Matt Ryan will make more mistakes inevitably than Aaron Rodgers. It may not be the case this weekend. Absolutely not. But it's just if I had to gamble, if there was just going to be one critical mistake, I, you know, there were there was a ball or two last week where there was actually one quick out route uh, early in the second quarter that to me deep in the red zone that looked like pick six for me. Just fortunately, the, the linebacker or outside corner, whoever it was, sort of fumbled a little bit and didn't come out of his break. But man, Matt threw a dangerous ball. But then after that, completely smoked the Seahawks defense so maybe I'm making too big of a deal of it but I think the big issue there though that that my my major takeaway and and sort of what Brady alluded to is that this will most likely come down to who doesn't make those mistakes and and interestingly enough uh, you know you look back in in that Seattle game with Atlanta and it's easy to talk about sort of the overall production that Atlanta had and how they invariably buried them with that the in-game adjustments that we alluded to uh, earlier as far as defensively, but the mistakes really sort of ticked that thing off. You know, the kick return, uh, the guy sort of not knowing whether or not he should come out, and he goes ahead and comes out, and they're on the two-yard line or whatever, and then Russell Wilson gets foot-stepped on, and they get a safety, right? I mean, that really sort of kicked things off. You know, uh, some mistake here, a big penalty on on a big kick return that brought back something like 40 yards of, of field position. Those through, bam, bam, mistake, mistake, and then all of a sudden, Mm, now the floodgates open. So I think that's sort of the vein in which I'm going to watch this NFC Championship game. We know what both of these two teams can do. Who's going to play closer to mistake-free football? And if I had to place a bet in Vegas on which that might be, from sort of old, old-time old bias, I probably would, would presume that Aaron Rodgers would make less of those. Uh, that script may change after this week, and if it does, we'll have to change our thinking. So heading into the weekend, Brady, what do you got going on? How are you going to be digesting and covering these games? I'll be working for CBS uh, in studio, doing a pre-halftime and, and post-game show. Uh, and actually, my, my brother-in-law, so I've got some family in town, uh, so he'll be coming along with me, and it's kind of appropriate considering he won a Super Bowl uh, as a captain for the Packers uh, back in 2010 when they had made that run. So he'll be giving me some inside kind of info on what it was like and, and what are some things that he's kind of looking for and seeing, uh, at least from the Packers' perspective. So looking forward to ha- spending some family time and watching some football. Awesome, and we're I'll sort of I'll sort of tease myself here a little bit. Uh, we're we're doing something that we don't typically do, uh, and we're going to do an on game or an on field uh, pregame show. So, pe- for fans of the of the website, this is for my 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 day job with Nesson, but for the New England Sports Network, we're going to be doing a, an on field uh, in the bowl there at Gillette Stadium pregame hour long show online uh, for uh, to sort of you know captain's chair kind of thing and just walk through a panel type deal and and really be able to get into greater depth than even we were able to here on on our, our podcast so we'll be diving really deep into that Steelers uh, Patriots matchup from a lot of different angles from a lot of different faces so check that out I'll be pushing it on social media but uh, Brady man enjoy the weekend uh, gonna be interesting here to hop back into this thing and and talk about who's gonna be in the Super Bowl but somehow some way we're gonna have to 
soak up that boring ass extra week of football that or non football that they put between the two games. But we'll we'll we'll, we'll make it work. You mean you're not going to talk? We're not going to have a, a podcast on the Pro Bowl. We're not going to talk about the <laughs> skills right. challenge right. and all of that. I, I think we I think we need to put together like maybe uh, some some sort of gambling wager on each one of the skills competitions. Right. That'd be a bit more entertaining. Fantasy football for skills comp. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. You know what? I, well, to be determined, people. So, fans of the FBF podcast, uh, we'll, we'll maybe do a rap show on what happened in these championship games. But, it, man, it's the one thing, and maybe this is just a gripe as a media member now, but I think as a player, getting to play in these Super Bowls, you absolutely love that extra week of work because you just get to, you get to chill, you get to pre-plan a little bit. But from a media perspective, I've sort of learned this with the website in past years where if you just blow it out on the matchup, oh, you know, start already looking at, you know, Patriots, Packers, or, or Steelers, you know, Falcons, or whatever it's going to be, and we spend all of next week pre Previewing that, by the time you get to like Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week, you don't have anything to talk about. You're like, uh, yeah. you know, and you end up doing stupid off-field stuff. So, uh, we'll we'll tr- we'll we'll try to strategically approach next week. So we'll we'll keep you up to date on uh, on social media how we're going to handle the podcast for next week. But enjoy your weekend, Brady. Take care, everybody. Thanks and great stuff as always. You too, Matt. And that is all for the FBF podcast in the game as we do each and every week. Thanks for checking out the website. Thanks for checking out our videos on the YouTube page as well. And thanks, as always, for checking in with this podcast. We really enjoyed it throughout the year. I love myself personally getting the perspective of guys who were working in different markets, who played different positions, but that all did play this game. Both of the Bradys bring excellent insight each and every week, so make sure you check those guys out on Twitter. Uh, Brady Papinga is at, at Brady Papinga, and Brady Quinn is at third underscore goal. Uh, so look for those guys, follow them. They've got great insight on games, and they're always working sort of in different aspects on game day. So they bring a different angle than I can ever bring you here just working in the New England market. So once again, thanks for checking out everything we bring here from FBF, and enjoy this weekend of games. Take care, people. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.